0: Psalm 56, verse 1 through 9. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, and an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. All day long, David cried. There seemed to be no end to the threats to David's life. I believe this psalm underlines the reality of the threats and their wickedness. This psalm is assumed by many commentators to have been written by David when he was prisoned in Gath, a part of our lesson today. David refers to the Philistines, Saul's pursuit to kill him, and many other troubles during this psalm. The wickedness of their actions is highlighted when we remember who David was. And those who threatened him had set themselves against God. About one third of 1 Samuel, including our passage today, is devoted to David's time running from Saul. This passage reminds me of chase scenes that we see in movies. When the protagonist falls into danger and crises one after another after another. And we're left thinking, how will this hero ever make it to safety again? Well, in this Psalm, David tells us how he will prevail. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So let's recap. Saul had been rejected by God, and David had been anointed as the promised king after God's own heart. The chosen king had been invited into court by the rejected king, and he had even slain with his sling the mighty Philistine soldier who ridiculed the Israelites. Saul had become jealous of David's military victories and even tried to kill David with his own spear, but failed. Then Saul ordered David to the army's front line in hopes he would die. However, David succeeds in battle and then marries Saul's daughter. He becomes more popular than Saul. David's continuing success fueled Saul's jealous hatred of him, Saul's crippling envy and murderous rage toward David has reached an all time high. Even Jonathan sees that his father is determined to put David to death and helps him flee for his life. As we pick up today, David has set out on the run from Saul with nothing at all packed to aid him on his journey. Nothing to eat, no weapons, and no army. The theme for this lesson is God preserves his people in surprising ways. Our first section is God provides sustenance for his people, and this is found in chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. David enters the city of Nob, which is northeast of Jerusalem, about two and a half miles southeast of Gibeah, which is where we assume David set out on his journey. After the destruction and the ark was captured by the Philistines, the tabernacle and its accessories were brought here. And this city now functioned as the central sanctuary. And Amalek, whom David approaches here, is the high priest. When David reaches Nob, Amalek comes trembling to meet him a reaction that we saw before in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when the elders greeted Samuel trembling in Bethlehem. This trembling in both cases precedes some mighty work that God is doing in redemptive history. After Amalek asked David why he is alone, David responds stating that the king had commissioned him with an important job that no one is supposed to know anything about. This was an obvious lie, however, we can only guess as to exactly why David lied. Maybe he was trying trying to save Amalek from being implicated in aiding an enemy of the king. Maybe he was scared for his own well-being. The text neither condemns nor justifies David for his behavior here. But David continues by asking, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Literally translated, David asks, what is there under your hand? Like under his control and immediately available. As it is stated here, and David would have known this, the priest did have food in his care and charge. And he answers, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. He had the bread that was set aside for use in the tabernacle. These were the 12 loaves baked according to the regulations stated in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 5 through 9. These loaves, according to the law, are to be arranged on the table of the tabernacle every Sabbath day and were only permitted to be eaten by the priests in a holy place. David answers him here stating that the young men and himself were kept from women and were consecrated as always on their missions, and Amalek provides him the bread. It is so puzzling why Amalek focuses on the one part of the law but overlooks another. Why did he offer the holy bread to David, that is, to only be eaten by the priests? Though he is reliable about the one aspect of the law, that the young men must not be unclean that is required on the day preceding observance of a religious duty found in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 18, yet he is completely flexible on the fact that the law stated it is to be eaten by priests only. It would serve us better to ask what God was doing here. In this confusion and danger, David does receive his needed daily bread. God sustained David here, not his storytelling or Amalek's kindness. It does not seem likely that Amalek could or would have bent the rules for any hungry man. The fact that it is David here making the request makes all the difference. This is no small item here. It was a clear need for David and the bread he received was nothing less than the bread of the presence, which by law the priests were to eat. Amalek's holy bread becomes David's daily bread. We cannot question about Amalek's conscious motives because they are not revealed to us here. However, what he did was of greater significance than he knew. Just as Saul had been presented with loaves of bread by three men going up to God at Bethel in the immediate aftermath of his anointing as king in 1 Samuel chapter 10, so now David had been given loaves of bread, but it was holy bread by a priest and not, as God is providing sustenance for his anointed king. Our daily bread does not rely on whether we deserve it or we earned it. We do not receive our daily bread because we are godly but because God is gracious. The conversation continues between David and the high priest, as it seems that David notices a servant of Saul present, which alerts David to his own vulnerability. David is not only hungry, he is defenseless. He had left in a rush and did not gather provisions or collect his weapons. And he asks Amalek if he has weapons on hand. David claims that the urgency of the king's business had left him no time to arm himself. And on the most unlikely circumstance, Amalek provides David with the sword of Goliath, Goliath, which had been stored at the sanctuary behind the ephod, worn by the high priest. This is an extremely strange thing to ask a priest. And why this sword was being stowed here is even stranger But again, we must remember that God works in mysterious ways and it is God here that has armed his defenseless king. David was God's chosen king and whatever Amalek was thinking, his actions were right. He served God's king. We move on to our next section here, which is God delivers his people from danger found in chapter 21, verse 10 through 15. As David must pick up and keep moving, He chooses the most shocking and reckless destination to flee to, Gath, the nearest Philistine city and Goliath's hometown, with Goliath's massive sword in hand. You know, the one he recently very publicly cut off its Philistine owner? He couldn't possibly think that he could blend in here and hide. This could show you just how desperate David was and how perilous his situation with Saul was currently. And that Gath was out of Saul's territory and probably the last place he would think to look for David is the only likely reason one could think of here. The king of Gath, Ach- Achish, seems to accept whatever David tells him. But his officials indicate that David is not just any other refugee from a ma- but a major figure among their enemies. They say, is this not David the king of the land? This most likely was in recognition of David leading the Israelite forces against them, but how ironic that these pagans call David the king. Their words were truer than they knew. David was destined to be the king of the land. They also remind Ashish of what had been sung in earlier victory celebrations. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This was the very song that so infuriated Saul, which was found in chapter 18. And important to note here that most of those ten thousands they are referring to were Philistines. David had now been acknowledged as the future king by God in his words to Samuel, by the prophet Samuel by anointing him, by Jonathan who symbolically passed his robe to David in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and now by the Philistine servants. It was the very danger of being regarded as the future king in Saul's territory that had driven David to flee to Gath. Now that he had been recognized in Gath, any hope of his safety was gone. David had reason to be very afraid, and verse 12 tells us that David took these words to heart and greatly feared Ashish. This is the only place in the books of Samuel that we are told that David was afraid of the threats against him. He was under arrest, confined, and taken into custody, as implied here when it states in their hands in verse 13. We do not know the techniques that David used in most of his battles against the Philistines. We know, of course, the bold and skillful cunning with which he brought down Goliath, Here, David turns to acting insane as his grand plan to avoid any further danger. We're told he scribbled on the doors of the gate and drooled on his beard. This would take cunning and nerves of steel to disguise his sanity, sure. But let's not write this off to be the success of David's folly and acting skills when he eventually does escape. As it states here that Ashish sends him away because he says he had enough insane people around. Let's certainly not say how lucky David was to have convinced Ashish. Just like David stated in Psalm 56 that we open with, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Even before it happened, it seems that David expresses his confidence that God had delivered his anointed from the the threats of Gath. Just as he had been delivered from Goliath just as he had been delivered repeatedly from Saul. The prayer in Psalm 56 was answered. David's trust in God was vindicated. This is the stuff that Psalms are made of. On the run, once again, we enter our next section, which is God provides protection and providence for his people found in chapter 22, verse one through five. David escapes to a cave near Adullam a town in the low hills of West Judah, about 12 miles east of Gath. David had to find a place to hide as he now was not safe in Saul's territory or in Philistine territory. The book of Samuel has now told us six times of David's escaping from Saul, and now he had escaped from the Philistines. David is all alone and helpless, apart from the Lord. And David continues to trust in God. As David hid alone in the cave, word traveled to his family. And when his brothers and his father's house heard the news, they went to him. They were not the only ones who came to David. Reading the description here, Then everyone who was in distress, and everyone in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. It makes me think of a motley crew of riffraff. Like, if you have ever seen the movie Tangled, I'm sorry, I love Disney, but it makes me think of the crew of heathens at the Snuggly Duckling. That's what I pictured in my mind when I read it. Well, there were 400 of them, though, and they looked to David as their captain. This were the weak and despised ones in the kingdom, the nobodies, if you will, the sinners and tax collectors, if you will. There are many ways in which David personifies the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, which we have discussed at length. But I want to pause for a second and note that this passage where David rallies the outcast and the unwanted of Israel is an example that's often overlooked, yet is very profound. Like David at Adullam, Jesus gathered a band of followers that the world could only describe as ragtag that the Pharisees deride it as tax collectors and sinners in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. And Jesus' response to them was, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ promoting the conversions of souls is the greatest act of mercy. The gospel call is a call to repentance, a call for us to change our minds and change our ways. And we're promised that along the way, we will never be alone, just like David here. We will be provided what we need to fulfill God's purpose, for it is a difficult road full of pain and suffering and trials. But God preserves his people along the way. Our primary focus here though is not on the group or army that God provided to David when he was alone, though that is significant. It's on the arrangement that David makes for his parents found in verses three and four. David's parents were getting old and the thrill of running from Saul was not what they needed. Therefore, David, worried about their well-being, traveled to Moab, which is a significant journey as it lies east of the Dead Sea. They would have had to pass around the southern tip of the sea. He went before the king of Moab and asked him if his parents could be given sanctuary until David might discover what God will do with me. David stating this gave genuine insight into his confidence that the Lord is working through these events of his life. His faith continued to grow here, and David's not ashamed to confess his faith to this pagan king. After he makes his request, the king of Moab grants it. Oh, what relief David must have felt that he had obtained refuge for his parents. Our text does not tell us why the king of Moab granted David this request, but we can be sure it was God's doing and part of God's plan. This was not something that David set in place. His smooth talking convinced the Moab king to do him this solid. This was God's arranging. God provided protection for David's parents through the providence to take them to Moab, and God's going to continue to do the same for David. David goes to his stronghold next, most likely with his men, possibly in the area between Moab and Israel. It appears he stayed there for some time because of the words all the time David was in his stronghold, though we know nothing about what happened here. In the next verse, we see a prophet, Gad, coming to David and advising him, "'Do not stay in the stronghold. "'Leave and go into the land of Judah.'" So David listened and went into the forest of Harith. God here gives David direction and special guidance through this prophet. God is also providing protection for David through the providence of a prophet. Saul had no such privilege. He has no light, but the gleams of God's guidance shine on David through the counsel of this prophet. We do read in the next verse that Saul gets word about David and his men. And it is interesting to see this prophet working to protect David from Saul. But it's much more than that. God is fulfilling his his purpose for David. And that includes David returning to the land of Judah, the land that he will one day rule. This was not just a matter of his safety, Couldn't David have hid with his parents in Moab? Wouldn't that have been easier for him? But God is not done with David. In Judah, David would suffer. The call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is no less radical. The Bible speaks repeatedly about the suffering we will face as Christians. But being in the pit is not so bad if one can hear his shepherd's voice. David heard that voice directly through a prophet, and God's troubled people still hear that voice directly through the prophetic word more fully confirmed, as 2 Peter 1.19 states. Scripture provides us the endurance and the encouragement we need during trials and sufferings. God does preserve his people in surprising ways. He doesn't do this on a parade float with trumpets, but in quiet ways. The tokens of God's help in our passage today, five loaves of bread, the deliverance from gath, A Moab king allowing his parents refuge and a prophet providing orders are not the usual arsenal of strength one would think of, but oh, what a difference each one made for David on his journey as a fugitive. And because of their significant, unusual, and surprising ways, God gets all the glory. As with David, Jesus was subject to all the dangers and evil inherent in a fallen world. God had work for Jesus to do and protected him until his plan was complete. From the moment he was born and King Herod wanted to seek him out and murder him, to when God delivered Jesus from the angry crowd who wanted to throw him off the cliff at Nazareth, to Jesus being tempted in the desert, to so many people persecuting him, according to God's timing, God protected Jesus in surprising ways until his work was done. But the most amazing and surprising story is when Jesus Christ delivers you and me, and the way he did it. David was not a perfect man, which we can see here clearly, yet he is a man who has been anointed by God and is learning to seek what God has to say. We are a part of the new covenant with Jesus Christ. And anytime we need sustenance, delivering from danger, protection and providence, Jesus is with us. We need only seek what God has to say. Let us remember to consult God's good and true word more often and particularly in times of stress, difficulty, and desperation. Remember that David points us to the perfect King, Jesus Christ. And until his plan is done with us, God will preserve us. We are a part of his story, and he is our rescuer. Let us praise our Savior for the refuge he provides to needy and helpless sinners like us, who would be hopeless outcasts if not for Jesus' saving, mercy, and grace. The end of Psalm 56 states, In God whose word I praise... In the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life.